From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine is all over social media. We talk with a sociologist about effective ways to spread truth and build trust in the vaccine. Then, 39 people, two dogs and a cat have moved into Denver's newest sanctioned encampment for folks experiencing homelessness. Meanwhile, the city continues to sweep non-sanctioned camping, and homeless advocacy groups challenge those sweeps in court. Plus, a Colorado comedian who's found more time to make paintings, sculptures, and drawings during the pandemic. A lot of the materials he finds around his house. This is a crayon on karate board. So my son takes karate and he breaks the boards. And I'm like, well, if I have to pay for these, I might as well make some art out of them. Hi, I'm Tanya Mosley. Investing in your community is important. Your donation to this station keeps people informed so that they can in turn make good decisions. One way to make a long-term meaningful impact is with an automatic monthly donation. Support your community by supporting this station. Here's how. Support Colorado Public Radio with a tax-deductible year-end gift at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Vaccine rollout marks a new phase of fighting the pandemic. For some, it's a glimmer of hope. Others are skeptical. Jennifer Reich is a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. For years, she's written about the fears and beliefs that hold people back from getting vaccines. Now she's thinking about communication strategies for the COVID-19 vaccine. Thanks for being here, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. A lot of Americans haven't yet made up their minds about whether they'll get the vaccine, as many as 20 percent, according to some national polls. What's your best strategy for reaching out to people who are on the fence about getting a COVID-19 vaccine? You know, I've been studying vaccine refusal and vaccine hesitancy for more than a decade. And I will say that this vaccine in particular has had the most volatility in terms of how people's approach to it, how much they trust it, what they're thinking about it has changed month to month, comparing numbers from the spring through the fall and then into even last week. We see some movement, which indicates people are still trying to weigh information. They're trying to understand what this vaccine is. They're trying to understand how it works. And then they're trying to make decisions that feel relevant to them. And because this vaccine um, is new and even this virus and this disease is new, it's important to recognize that people are trying to understand things as information is shifting, as new and new information becomes available. There's always going to be a small number of people who will never be persuaded vaccines are useful. And I think that's no exception in this particular case. And that's showing up. There are people who do not think this vaccine will ever be acceptable because they don't think any vaccine is acceptable. Numerically, that's a really small number of people. And what we really need to focus on are the people who are undecided and are persuadable. And like you said, people have been rejecting vaccines or hesitant about getting vaccines for a long time. Is there anything about this vaccine and the conversation that surrounds it that strikes you as different than the conversation we've been hearing for decades? Where we find ourselves with this vaccine is in many ways uncharted. So we have a disease that 10 months ago we didn't have any idea would ever exist. We have a vaccine that was developed using very new technologies. And then it's worth acknowledging that the vaccine that's being given out immediately 
um, is not yet licensed. This is a vaccine that has been authorized under an emergency process because the severity of this disease is significant. And I think it's a totally reasonable response then that people have questions and feel uncertain and are wanting answers before they make decisions that feel really important to them and their families. I like that you used the word uncharted. I know I've gotten so tired of hearing about the unprecedented things that have happened this year. There have just been so many new things and unprecedented and uncharted things. You point out there's a lot experts don't know yet about the COVID-19 vaccine. How can messaging around the COVID-19 vaccine balance both being honest and upfront about what we don't know and building trust in its efficacy? One of the things that's really important is that we acknowledge what we know and what we don't know. And I think if we're going for long-term credibility on this issue, we need to be transparent. And we, meaning not just me, um, but to think about public health agencies, government agencies, companies, manufacturers, community leaders, who are all invested in seeing the population protected, to be honest as much as possible. So of the things that we know, it seems pretty clear from multi, from clinical trial data that these vaccines, both the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccines that have been presented for emergency authorization, are both really effective at preventing severity of disease. And that is not a minor thing for a disease that has such a high rate, not just of death, but of hospitalizations, of serious illness, and even for people who aren't hospitalized of long-term COVID, which we don't even fully understand yet. And so in thinking about the ability to lower the severity of disease, that's a significant contribution, and that's really important. What we do not yet know is whether these vaccines prevent community spread. We don't know that these vaccines will contribute to what we call herd immunity, which is to say that people who are vaccinated protect the people around them. There's optimism that they might, but those data don't exist yet. And so for us to insist that 70% of the population have to be vaccinated as part of a public good really undermines our ability to talk clearly and honestly about what we know and we don't know, and then how people then should feel motivated to become immunized. People feel nervous about becoming sick, and they're also nervous about infecting the people around them. And those are both really important motivators for wanting vaccines. But we have to be really clear that even if someone is immunized, they still have to use many of the same precautions they had to use before vaccination. They still likely have to wear a mask. They still have to focus on social distancing. But it's worth acknowledging that we don't yet know everything, which is not to say we don't know anything. You bring up masks that just because there is a vaccine doesn't mean that mask wearing is suddenly coming to an end. But I also think about the divide around mask wearing that developed early in the stages of the pandemic and continues. How do doctors and the people working on this messaging help prevent that kind of polarization and divide between mask wearers and non-mask wearers and vaccine getters and non-vaccine getters? It's a mistake to continue to treat people as ignorant or anti-science or conspiracy theorists just because they ask questions. Um, I think that everyone has the right to ask questions to make decisions about their own health, and this is no exception. So thinking then about, you know, what does it mean to hear what concerns are and come up with answers is important. And it turns out all of these questions have answers, and so we should be able to have these conversations. Let's turn to Colorado specifically. We know that in children, we have some of the highest rates of kids who aren't vaccinated for childhood infectious diseases. Do you think that that perhaps has any bearing on how the COVID-19 vaccination conversation might play out in Colorado? 
So Colorado definitely leads the nation in the number of people who opt out of vaccines by choice. We are amongst the front runners year after year. I think there is a kind of rugged individualism in Colorado. I think people really value their personal freedoms in a way that matches our state personality. And so figuring out then how we can also have conversations about working together as a community while still acknowledging people's commitment to their personal freedoms is really important in this. As with any vaccine, there are conspiracy theories and myths that have risen up around the COVID-19 vaccines. I know on Facebook, I've seen infographics circling that falsely claim that the vaccine sterilizes women or falsely claim that it changes your DNA. We know that these things aren't true, but what is the best way to dispel myths like that? What we know is that when we lack formal information, those gaps will always be filled with informal information. And because COVID happened quickly and we did not have a great deal of clear information about, for example, how to limit transmission, um, people began filling those gaps with informal information. And that one of the best ways to combat misinformation is not to yell at people, but to actually provide accurate information. So I think everybody wants to understand better how, what are the best ways of preventing transmission? And that information is continuing to shift. So early on, people were encouraged to wipe down their groceries. It's clear that that's not the most important thing in limiting transmission. And if we don't have that good information that's available that we understand, then it's easy to see that information that may not be accurate sounds and intuitively like it could be true. What I'll add is that the mRNA vaccines raise a different kind of challenge because they're vaccines developed using a technology that hasn't been used in vaccines for healthy people before. And mRNA starts to sound like DNA um, and that uh, scientists have worked hard to create a variety of videos and explanations for the way that messenger RNA is different than information in DNA, but it still sounds Uh, scary in a lot of ways. And I think it tracks onto our concerns about things like GMOs and other kinds of genetic modification, that we had a pre-existing concern about these issues and that in some ways these new technologies have to really be unpacked in ways that people can feel in control of the information. We are long past an era where we do what people tell us to do. We are no longer a population that just follows doctor's orders. We are all encouraged every day to question and to do our own research and to gather information and to talk to people, whether it's about buying an appliance or choosing a restaurant or choosing a healthcare plan. And so we are all doing this. And the ability then to democratize some of the science to make it clear to people is going to be really important in empowering them to make decisions that they can live with. And when you're thinking about how to get that information to people, who are the best people to be talking in different communities? And what's the best way to get that information in front of people in a way that they can trust? You know, vaccines are interesting to talk about because they're not really just about vaccines. Vaccines are always about everything in the community we care about. It's about our personal freedoms. It's about our connections to others. It's about the things we fear, the things we feel we can control. And so in thinking about, you know, how do we make decisions about our health? How do we make decisions about our families? We always talk to the people we feel, understand our life, whose lives might be similar to ours, whose values might be similar to ours, and we ask for advice from the people around us. And so it's unsurprising that I found in my research that parents talk to other parents um, in addition to talking to pediatricians, in addition to reading books and talking to more formal sources, because they want people who understand their experience and can relate to it. What we know from childhood vaccines is that the best predictor of who doesn't vaccinate their own children is the number of people they know who also don't vaccinate their children. So we know that things like vaccine decision-making cluster. And so 
when somebody in your network says like, I got my vaccine against COVID and here was what my experience was like, or here's how I felt after the second dose, or here's why I took a day off of work after the second dose in anticipation of maybe not feeling great, but here's how I feel three days later. That carries a lot of weight for people because they trust the people they know in their network and they trust the people whose lives and values are similar. So when thinking about how do we talk about a new vaccine that's targeting adults, how do we communicate about what's, you know, what we know and don't know, it's likely that the people who are going to be seen as trusted on this issue are the people who are already trusted in the community. We have to think about communication now as a two-way conversation where people can ask questions about what's unknown and ask for clarification about these new technologies and these distribution systems and get answers from people who they think respect them as decision makers also. And that's going to depend who it is. So it could be community leaders. It could be um, grassroots organizations. It could be religious leaders. There's examples of um, people like salon workers as being sources of information on health because people go to their beauty parlor and they talk about their health and their family. We can think about a variety of cultural brokers who might be really helpful actors in these conversations. Um, and one of the important pieces then is to make sure that those community leaders are also empowered with accurate information that they can share too. What about language? I know even when I talk with people that I'm close with about something that we disagree on, there are words that are just, they trigger one or the other of us to raise our guards and it's hard to keep listening. Are there things like that in language that you're thinking about when it comes to vaccines, either for individuals talking with people that they know or in public health in the messaging about COVID-19 vaccine? There's some, you know, great suggestions available from people who study health communication specifically. So, for example, you know, this vaccine has been talked about as rushed. Um, and I think there's a lot of indications that naming something Operation Warp Speed did not go very far for communicating a careful scientific process. So we can think about the ways things are named and referenced as shaping perceptions. Um, and so there's definitely indications that when we talk about an expedited review process, that tends to go further than a vaccine rushed to market, right, in terms of thinking about what we care about and what's careful. What I care about in my work is not so much the immediacy of like, can we talk people into getting vaccinated right now? But how do we make people feel that they've made a good decision that they're happy with after they make the decision? Because this is a vaccine that's really useful. And I, I, as much as I keep saying, like, we don't know it's full promise, what we do know is that if we can prevent hospitalizations and death, that's a really good thing. And that we don't have the option right now of feeling like waiting and seeing longer is the safest option because community spread is really high. Um, and the vaccine is clearly statistically safer than waiting and seeing what community spread might do to you and your family. Like, that's pretty clear. So, but I, what I think about is not just this vaccine, but all vaccines, right? How do we continue to explain um, and make available information about safety, about monitoring, about the ways vaccines work in the body that make people take ownership of that choice and feel good about it? Because then they leave and they talk to people around them about those choices and they feel empowered. Is, is there potential harm in campaigning for people to get a vaccine now and building all of this momentum if there might just be frustration at the lack of availability for most of the population right now as we're in the first phases of rollout? This is definitely a vaccine that feels like a hurry up and wait kind of situation. I think right now, though, is a really good time to make information available to people who want to educate themselves about their options and about what this vaccine is and how it will work in their lives. I do get nervous sometimes that vaccines are sometimes overpromised because what we are used to as a country are vaccines that you get maybe 
once or twice, and then you have lifetime immunity. And that tends to be the way we think about immunizations. So we think about childhood immunizations as providing lifetime protection or sometimes requiring a single booster in adulthood or a booster every 10 years or so. And we don't yet know what the story of this is. We don't know if this will be more like a flu vaccine than a measles vaccine in terms of long-term protection. We don't yet know if this is like tetanus where it's a vaccine for personal benefit or if this is something that helps protect those around us, something, you know, and we can think about the different vaccines that do slightly different things. And so until we know all of these answers, it's going to be, I think, important for people to set their priorities and understand what the vaccines can and can't do and how that works with their lives so that they can prepare for what they want. What I do worry about is that there's some ways that the priority systems are starting to indicate that, you know, we're going to have to potentially have hard conversations about what kinds of workers are essential or who really absorbs risk and who really doesn't. And I think that would be unfortunate because it's really hard for us to continue to message that we're all in this together, but that some people might be, you know, harm's way faster and thinking through critically what that's going to look like. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. It's always a treat to be here. Jennifer Reich is a professor of sociology at the University of Colorado, Denver. She's author of Calling the Shots, Why Parents Reject Vaccines. A new sanctioned homeless encampment opened in Denver Tuesday, and it was immediately filled to capacity with people and even some pets. Today, the tents that they used across the street will be cleared away. Let's get perspective on what's happening now with Cole Chandler, executive director of Colorado Village Collaborative, and Donna Bryson, housing and hunger reporter for Denverite. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Cole, the Colorado Village Collaborative has been working with other organizations to open what is now the second sanctioned encampment in the city. 39 people, two dogs and a cat, now call it home. Tell us about the moment when it first welcomed people. Yeah, it was a pretty amazing day on Tuesday, about 10 a.m. We opened up the doors to that place. You know, it was something that we'd worked for for a really long time, for months and months and months, uh, uh, pushing and and advocating for that option for people, a space for dignity, a space for belonging, a space for safety and health and wellness. And just seeing folks come in that day was was pretty amazing. We saw people that, um, you know, said that they were leaving their things uh, in their tent and walking down the street without a backpack for the first time in six years, because suddenly uh, they had a safe place that they could trust that their things would be safe. And uh, they said they felt as light as a feather. What is uh, we talked oh, one- go ahead. Yeah, we talked with another woman who said that just having a space to go to the bathroom, not having to hold it, not having to worry about where she would go to the bathroom uh, was just a a life-changing reality for her. And another man who was uh, thrilled to not have to worry about the encampment closure that's happening today. Tell us what this safe place looks like. There are 30 tents in the sanctioned encampment. What else is there? So these tents are actually ice fishing shelters. And so I think when I invite people to imagine what this looks like, I actually invite people to imagine what we've done uh, with restaurants during the pandemic. So we know that it's safer to invite people into outdoor individualized dining spaces. And so we've done the same thing for uh, providing homeless shelter. We've created these pop-up tents that that are outdoors, that are in a parking lot, and they provide each person with their own individualized space. We also have some uh, larger tents that are set up where we have propane heaters activated and uh, we're able to keep people warm during the day with social distancing in that space. We also have restrooms, we have trash, 
and we're delivering wraparound services to the site as well. Cool. We mentioned that many of the people now in the encampment had been living in their own tents just across the street, but that wasn't really a line of people waiting to get in. Talk about the outreach to connect with them. Absolutely. So the camp that popped up across the street from Denver Community Church at 16th and Pearl had been there for over a month, uh, days before we even went public about our plans to open up a safe outdoor space at that site. We spent that whole time building relationships in that camp. And I think that one of the things that made that so successful is the staff that we've hired to operate this space has quite a bit of their own lived experience with life challenges and with their own experiences of homelessness. And so we've hired a staff that relates to this population in a very direct way. And so uh, through that relationship building process, we really had an unprecedented day on Tuesday. In a camp of about 50 people, we were able to, to have 32 people from that camp move into our space. If you ask any outreach worker, they would tell you that a, a day like Tuesday was a total dream. You never show up into a camp and have an option like the one that we had and can get, you know, 65% of the camp to elect into services. And so it was really a, a tremendous uh, day and a tremendous new tool in the tool belt of the shelter and housing continuum in Denver. Is there a sense of distrust about people coming into the encampment and giving up their own tents? You know, I was amazingly surprised that we did not encounter that. I, I felt like that would be something that could potentially be a barrier for, for folks, but people were thrilled with the shelters that, that we stood up and, and people were um, understanding that, you know, my tent leaks. Uh, it's it's uh, not something that's safe and stable every night. And really people um, were able to come on in with a great bit of trust. Donna, you've been talking with people experiencing homelessness. What are you hearing about these encampments? What I hear over and over again when I talk to people who are experiencing homelessness is that they want stable housing. Uh, <laughs> but they definitely see, or I've talked to people who definitely see sanctioned camping or safe outdoor spaces as, as a bridge, as a, uh, a advantage and advancement over sleeping on the streets. And uh, as a way to avoid being moved along. You know, we were talking this morning about a, uh, a cleanup right outside and those, those end up with people moving maybe a few blocks and moving countless times as after cleanup after cleanup. And for six months, that's not gonna happen at, at these two spots in, uh, in Capitol Hill. Instead of just telling people they have to move, there's actually a place to go. Donna, the first encampment opened last week. How is that one going? That's at the parking lot at First Baptist Church, so right across from the Capitol, from the state Capitol. And uh, it has 22 tents, and it's specifically for women and for trans transgender people. It's been filling up not quite as quickly as what happened just uh, this week, but it has been moving up. And it's interesting to me that both these camps are a little bit smaller than uh, the organizers were talking about initially, and they're kind of sister camps. Together, they, they hold maybe a few more people than we might have envisioned at any one camp, but each one is a little bit smaller and they're going to share services. Cole was talking about their bathrooms on the site, but there'll be a shower service that'll shower truck that'll come regularly between these two camps and, uh, and a laundry truck. So they, uh, in a way it's making good use of being close to one another. Donna, what are you hearing from people who live near the sanctioned encampments? Is the community coming together on this initiative or is there a not in my backyard element as well? Well, there are definitely people who have been supportive of what's been happening, happening, but 
if we think back, there were two sites proposed before these sites opened this week and last week, and they both were withdrawn after a lot of community opposition. And I think a lot of opposition that I'm hearing seems to stem from um, confusion or questions about what these camps will be like, how they'll be different from the unsanctioned camping that people see on their streets. And now that we have two open, maybe a lot of people's questions about on that, those two points will, uh, will be answered. And how? And I'm also, I think it's worth pointing out that people are saying we need many more here. There, at least according to the point in time, which is an undercount, but a, but an estimate gives us an idea. There were maybe a thousand people uh, last year sleeping on the streets in the Denver area, and that's just a, just just a fraction of people who are experiencing homelessness. So I've heard people say that we need uh, sanctioned camping in every neighborhood in town. The city has pointed to public health concerns when it talks about why it's swept encampments that weren't sanctioned in the past. Talk to us about how these will be different. Cole, how will the tents be cleaned and the area be cleaned and the sanctioned camping area maintained? Well, the first thing is that this whole model was designed uh, to follow CDC guidelines, uh, which, which suggests that encampments should not be moved during the pandemic and suggests that there ought to be a certain amount of spacing maintained and certain services offered to encampments. And so this model was designed to meet those guidelines. It was also designed in close partnership with Denver's Department of Public Health and Environment. And so we're doing David, daily uh, COVID symptom screening at the site. We're taking temperatures. We're asking about cough and shortness of breath upon entry into the site each day. And so uh, those kinds of measures are in place. We also have 24-hour staff on site. They're uh, walking through the site you know, a couple times each hour collecting trash from, from folks in their tents um, and, and working to keep the site as clean as possible. We're also engaging residents in that process. So um, having a couple shifts each day where residents can participate in the upkeep of the site and also in the upkeep of the surrounding blocks. And so really our effort is to, to be good neighbors and to make a positive impact um, in a neighborhood that's uh, quite honestly felt the crunch and felt the pinch of uh, the growing unsheltered homelessness population that Donna mentioned. How long are people allowed to stay in the sanctioned encampment? So our philosophy at Colorado Village Collaborative is that we believe in sheltering folks until they're housed. And so we will not be setting a timeline for how long someone can stay in the program. But while someone's in the program, we expect that they will be working towards their own goals of stability um, and working towards uh, future outcomes into housing. Um, that being said, the sites will each be on their location for six months. So the, the lease at First Baptist Church of Denver and the lease at Denver Community Church both expire at the end of May 2021. There's some stability there, though. Donna, there have been legal challenges to the city sweeps of non-sanctioned camps. You attended a hearing this week. Where do things stand? Well, the, the hearing is in a case filed by people experiencing homeless and, homelessness and by the advocacy group Denver Homeless Out Loud. They're asking the city to stop the sweeps, at least during the pandemic and possibly beyond. And the hearings this week were asking a federal judge to issue an emergency injunction to at least stop these cleanups until uh, pending a trial, pending a longer trial. And what we heard over two days of testimony this week um, were expert witnesses talking about the impact on mental health and on health of, of being moved along. Uh, we also heard from people experiencing homelessness, some of the people who are filing this, who filed this suit, who, who described their own experiences of losing belongings and uh, not knowing where to go after cleanup. The city is 
arguing that, yes, the Centers for Disease Control has said that camps shouldn't be moved along, uh, at least uh, unless there's a better alternative, unless there's an individual housing alternative for people living on the streets, but that they have other health and safety concerns to to balance, including other kinds of disease that are have, that are they're seeing in these camps, uh, including the buildup of trash and needles and human waste, and that they have other things to to balance. That's what the city is arguing. I'm not sure when we're going to hear the judge's decision between these two two opposing points of view. Cole, the Colorado Village Coalition operates Tiny House Village in Denver. That's another way for people to transition into more permanent solutions. How does the sanctioned encampment fit into the idea of solutions? Yeah, so our our organization has opened uh, one tiny home village this year. We've actually expanded from 11 units to 33 tiny home units. And then we've brought on these additional 50 uh, safe camping spaces this year as well. So Denver now has two permitted tiny home villages and two permitted tent villages. And that's really part of a national model that's focused on finding ways to address unsheltered homelessness. As Donna mentioned earlier, we have something like a thousand people experiencing unsheltered homelessness in our city. And I think folks that drive drive through downtown, folks that work and live downtown, they feel frustration around that. But I think one of the things that I would like to say and that um, this solution points out is that things don't have to be that way. This year, uh, through tiny homes and through uh, safe camping sites, we've created nearly 100 new spaces. Uh, So at the end of this year, about 100 people that were sleeping outside will be sleeping in a safe space. If we had the the will to continue pushing that forward, we could do that. We need more of these spaces to come online. I think one of the hardest things for me about the camp across the street um, being closed today is that there were people in that camp that uh, wanted to come into our space, but our space filled up in a matter of three hours. And so we need to keep pushing these kinds of solutions forward that can connect people to services effectively and uh, can deliver long-term positive outcomes for our neighbors on the streets. Like you're saying, this is an issue much larger than just 100 people. The sanctioned encampment is only one part of the larger discussion. Are there services and resources that are being offered to help people in the encampment so that it isn't just a temporary place for them to stay so that they can move forward? Absolutely. So we're delivering outreach services. We're delivering mental health services to folks. We're identifying goals to income and employment and long-term housing options. We'll be doing housing intake forms with individuals. Uh, Getting into housing is a long process, and we are short a considerable number of affordable housing units in the city. And the reality is that we're not going to have the thousand units that we need overnight. So we've got to do something in the meantime to make things better for our housed and unhoused neighbors and that lead towards long-term housing outcomes. I also wonder with colder weather this week, how much is that a consideration for people in trying to convince them to use sanctioned encampment? We know, for example, not everyone wants to use a traditional shelter when it gets cold out. So I think uh, one of the big draws for folks to come into our space is that every single tent actually has electricity to the tent. And so we've provided electric warming blankets and electric heating pads to the tents. That's not something that people are used to. Uh, People that are sleeping unsheltered are used to staying in a cold, wet uh, tent overnight, uh, night in and night out. So to have the space to get warm and dry, to have the opportunity to have electricity to your tent, those are pretty big draws to people. 
Let's also get some perspective on the increasing need for these resources. Cole, you do a count each January. Tell us about that. So the count is uh, done. uh, It's a federal count, and it happens in Denver under the leadership of the Metro Denver Homelessness Initiative. Uh, Basically, that count counts the number of people accessing emergency shelter services, the number of people accessing transitional housing services and rapid rehousing services. And then we also give it our our best effort to count the number of people outdoors. So it is a point in time count is is based on a single night. Um, This year, that point in time count showed that we had 996 unsheltered folks. Um, And so that was a doubling of the previous year and something that my organization in particular is, is focused on addressing as we continue to move forward. Donna, what does your reporting indicate about the overall challenges people are experiencing as they face homelessness right now? Uh, Cole was talking about the point in time. It's conducted in January, so it's been almost a year since it's been done in Denver. That was before the pandemic, and I think it's pretty clear that there are many more people. There are probably many more people in January, but there are many more people now, in part because of the, the effect that the pandemic has had on the economy. Uh, And I think anyone driving around town, walking around town, can see that there are more people living on the streets, that uh, they're living in parts of town we haven't seen them living in before. But there are also more people that we don't see who are experiencing homelessness and housing insecurity. And and I think we'll get some indication of how that is the increase this coming January, but it still won't tell us everything. Cool. Were there any surprises for you when you when the encampment opened or things that were encouraging for you to see? You know, I think just uh, reconnecting to some of those stories uh, from earlier. I was down at the safe outdoor space this morning uh, having a cup of coffee and talking with some of the residents. And I just asked, hey, how's it been the last couple nights? And uh, one of the guys that I've gotten to know over the last month or so, uh, he said, I don't know. I've been sleeping. He said, it's the first time I've really been sleeping through the night in years. And so for for folks that are used to staying outdoors, that are used to staying in tents, um, they don't sleep with a whole lot of peace of mind. They they always know that they could be awoken. They're sort of always on on watch. And so to just have a couple days to get a good night's sleep through the night, that really is transformational for people, uh, for their uh, health and well-being, for their mental health especially. And so I think that those kinds of stories are the kinds that keep us moving forward, and keep us um, working to create additional spaces like this. Cole and Donna, thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Cole Chandler is Executive Director of Colorado Village Collaborative. Donna Bryson is Housing and Hunger Reporter for Denverite, which is part of CPR News. When we come back, comedian Josh Blue, how the pandemic has changed his creative focus. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The annual Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza is different this year. No live audience, but instead, hosts Ryan Warner and Avery Lill cross the state to bring guests to you, like composer Ofer Ben Amatz in Colorado Springs. La Serena is the siren or the mermaid in a tower in the middle of the sea. In some ways, we're all the mermaid right now. Yes. (laughs) Listen for the fifth annual Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza Friday at 9 a.m. and 7 p.m. here on CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Avery Lill. Josh Blue is a big Colorado name in comedy. He won NBC's Last Comic Standing. Here he is performing at the Colorado Matters holiday extravaganza a few years ago. Like I said, I live here in Denver. I love our town, but I I just bought a house 
and I guess I didn't realize how close it was uh, in location to the Purina dog food plant. <laughs> I guess every day the, uh, that I went to like check the house out, the wind was blowing in the other direction. And now that I uh, live there three or four times a week, you know, you just go outside and you can like taste the dog food. You're like, oh, God, oh, oh, oh. I'm just out in the yard like, oh. The worst part is this makes me so damn hungry. (laughs) He hasn't kept up his busy tour schedule in the pandemic, so he's found himself with more time for fine art. This month, he's a guest artist at Pirate Contemporary Art Gallery in Lakewood. His work ranges from 15-foot-tall wood sculptures to crayon drawings of pigs. Josh Blue, welcome to the show. Hey, good morning. If you are going to walk the person listening through your art show, what's the first thing you would show them? Uh, probably my wood sculptures, the carving. Um, you know, I do the big uh, masks, wood carving, and... Um, you know, to me, that's my favorite thing to do, and it's the most dangerous for me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me more about that. Well, um, maybe your listeners don't know, but I have uh, cerebral palsy, so uh, palsy and power tools are quite an interesting combination. And that's actually <laughs> something that you talk about quite a bit in your sets. Um do you feel like the, and you've built a lot of jokes around it even, do you feel like it's a part of your fine art in the same way that it is a part of your comedy? Um, I do, you know, I, I go into doing artwork knowing that I can't draw a straight line, so I don't frustrate myself by trying to do that. Um, you know, there's a lot of expressive movement in my paintings and stuff, and, and that's a direct correlation to the palsy, I think. <laughs> And you talk about the power tools. How do you balance the risk that you could have a muscle spasm while you're using power tools with the urge to create these large wooden sculptures? That's a very good question, Avery. Uh, You know, I I just love doing artwork and I love creating things. And and to me, it's well worth the risk. I mean, a little little blood never hurt anyone, right? (laughs) It just shoves the dedication to the craft. Well, a lot of your work, it's made from materials you found around your house and your yard. Tell me about some of the stuff that you're proudest of repurposing. Uh, You know, my son is in a karate class, and uh, to move on to the next level to get his belt, he has to uh, break boards. Uh, So I've been using the boards that he breaks and uh, doing artwork on that. I'm like, well, if I have to pay for these, I might as well (laughs) repurpose them as a canvas. I love that. So what have you used those karate boards for? What Which pieces of art are they in? So it's uh, mainly the, the pig series. Um, my sister drew this pig when I was a kid and I stole the idea and I really just ran with it. And um, this pig has many different forms, but, uh, you know, it's the same sort of idea. Uh, and, and, you know, I've used it as my signature for many years in comedy clubs. So you can find this pig face on a bunch of green room walls all over the country. <laughs> so people, they know you as the guy who tells jokes. Do your paintings and sculptures have the same flavor? You know, there's nothing really very funny about my uh, artwork. It's all pretty morose. Um, which is interesting because I am known as a very 
jovial person and a happy person, but for some reason, whatever, uh, whatever comes out of me artistic-wise uh, doesn't usually have a smiley face with it. <laughs> I imagine that before the pandemic, you're probably spending most of your creative energy on comedy. How has it been to pour more of that into your fine art? Yeah, you know, I went from doing 200 shows a year to pretty much being a homeschool teacher. So I definitely needed a, a, a avenue to let out this creative uh, creative vein that I have. Um, you know, it, it's been great. I've always loved doing art. You know, I've done it since I was a kid, and it's just something that I, I like, need to do. Um, like, I'll wake up in, in the night and be like, I got to paint tomorrow, and I won't feel right until I do. And like you said, the, this is a very different creative vein for you, that the things that you're expressing are pretty different. Um, do you feel like there are themes that tie your work together? You know, I, I do so many different um, mediums, which is, you know, my paintings are very different from my sculptures and, and my drawings are so different. So, I, I mean, I just love to create. And it's weird what my brain um, triggers, you know, it's what just comes out of me. Again, I don't go into it trying to draw a straight line. So a lot of times I'm surprised what comes out, you know? Some of your work that I really enjoy is through paintings, but it's, again, it's found materials. So tell us more about the materials you're using in a lot of your paintings. Yeah. So, um, I bought a house, as you heard in that uh, bit about the Purina plant, uh, but the house came with like a hundred cans of half-empty paint. So I've just been using house paint, and um, when you have that much paint, you can be a little more sloppy with it and uh, less guarded with, uh, and you know, I just make a big mess and, and pour the paint, and it's just really... Um, it's quite a process, but I just love doing it so much. You've even found ways to incorporate the dried paint at the bottom of the can into your canvases to do this 3D situation. Um, is working with found materials something that you do out of practicality, or is it part of the art in a deeper way? Um, it's both. You know, I really um, try to be conscious of the planet and our resources. So um, anytime I see something that I'm like, well, I could reuse that trash, I guess. Uh, you know, most people would see trash at the bottom of a, you know, dried up paint can, but I see a moon or something like that. So um, it's my creative mind meeting the need to protect this planet's resources. I know you've said your art is more serious than your comedy, but there's one really tongue-in-cheek piece of work in this show. It's this pig, again, this pig character in the Zoom call. Can you describe the Zoom call artwork? Yeah, so it's the same pig character, um, and it's in uh, rows of four, so it looks like you're in a Zoom call. Uh, and, you know... The way I look at it is if you're on a Zoom call with a bunch of pigs, you're probably also a pig in some way. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, even the point of view is sort of a punchline. Um, lots of us have had to get familiar with work Zoom meetings, but for you, that means virtual stand-up routines. How are those going? 
Yeah, you know, um, Zoom is a pretty dismal platform for comedy. Um, you know, my uh, jokes really rely on you responding, and that's how I can tell how to deliver the next joke. With Zoom, uh, you know, I can see you laughing, but it's not quite the same as a big punch in the face from a full audience at Comedy Works or something. Yeah. And I'm assuming most people are on mute, so you can't even hear them laughing? Exactly. So it's basically telling the jokes to myself, which is not quite as fun for anyone. Right. And you don't even like practicing your routines in front of a mirror in normal times, right? No, I would never do that. Like, to me, that is a certain form of hell. <laughs> what are you looking forward to in comedy when the pandemic ends? You know, I, I just love making people laugh. And, and I think when we come out of this, um, uh, and even now, people definitely are going to need some laughs. And, um, you know, I think laughing is a great way to, to deal with the world and, and your own personal struggles. But I, I'm definitely ready to, to get that laughter back in my life. I know. I'm ready to be laughing more, too. While your work is on display at Pirate Gallery this month, you're getting to interact with people who come in to see it in real life. How is it to get that in-person feedback on your fine art while you're not getting it in your comedy? Yeah, it's definitely a different, um, different. you know, when you tell a good joke and everybody laughs, that's instant gratification. It's hard when you are watching someone look at your hard work of painting and maybe grimacing. <laughs> but... <laughs> But you know, you know, a grimace might not be bad. It's just not the same as a a laugh of you know to indicate success. And I don't know. Would you call comedy your first love, or has this embrace of different type, types of art during the pandemic changed your focus? Yeah, you know, uh, I mean, I will say I, I probably was an artist before I was a comedian, um, but. Um, I love them both, but obviously I feel like my comedy can touch more people and, and um, also ultimately change the perspective of disability. I think my artwork can do the same. Like if you see my big wood carving and you're like, your shaky ass did that, that's impressive, you know, but it's not quite as a big scale. <laughs> And how did you learn to work with so many mediums? You've got the wood carvings, and those even include wood burning. You've got crayons, house paint, sculpture, and comedy is even an art form. How did you learn all of those? Well, I mean, I have come from a very creative family, and then I went to a very hippie college out in Olympia, Washington, called the Evergreen State College, and they really promote um, just creative all levels of creativity. And then part of it is just going forward. I'm, I don't think I've ever had a, a formal lesson in wood carving, but I grew up uh, in West Africa and I saw a lot of uh, amazing wood sculptures there. And that's really what got me going on, on wanting to do wood carving. It's great to see it all tied together in this show. Josh, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on. Josh Blue is a comedian from Denver as well as a fine artist. His sculptures, drawings, and paintings are on display at Pirate Contemporary Art Gallery in Lakewood through December 20th. 
Finally today, Dr. Ethan Lazarus runs a nutrition center, is a delegate in the American Medical Association, and is the president-elect for the Obesity Medicine Association. He's a pianist and a cellist as well with the Littleton Symphony Orchestra. During the pandemic, he brushed up on music theory, studied composition, and learned digital audio production. This work led Dr. Lazarus to release a new album last week, which he also produced. Right now, let's listen to the title track of the album, Remembering Tomorrow. Dr. Lazarus says it's about optimism that will prevail over COVID-19 even when the end still seems far away. This is a song of hope. Remembering Tomorrow, the title track for the new album by Dr. Ethan Lazarus of Littleton. Thanks for joining us today on Colorado Matters. I'm Avery Lill. This is CPR News.